It's really good to see you. How was Christmas? Good. Awesome. What'd you get? Stuff. Stuff. Uh, video games? Yes. Oh, I like it. Did you get any Bitcoin? What? <laughs> Never mind. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Welcome to the Skippy and Doogle Show, baby. <laughs> Love it. Welcome to the show. It's really good to see you. How was Christmas? Good. Awesome. What'd you get? Stuff. Stuff. Uh, video games? Yes. Oh, I like it. Did you get any Bitcoin? What? <laughs> Never mind. You got any um any holiday gift ideas for people? What should people be buying people? Um, any any anything they they want or they asked, but like if they didn't get the thing they want for their birthday, they could get for Christmas. Oh, that's just that's that's that Dougal's logic. Like you know what I, mean? I like it a lot. You know what I mean? Anything else that people need to know? They need to know to not fight about presents. Yes, and not like light it. fight. Thank you, buddy. That was <laughs> epic cameo. Epic cameo. I thought he was going to come in and spit for like 45 minutes. Like, listen, <laughs> let me tell you about Google stock. <laughs> <laughs> Number one fan right there. Number one fan. I can't wait to hear his stock tips, man. He he keeps those close to he and Warren keeping those close to the vest. <laughs> it, it, that's uh, the first appearance of the special consultant to the Skippy and Diggle show. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. People got people got chimpanzees throwing darts for their stock picks. We got little kids. Yeah, we got little kids, and he's crushing it. Let me tell you, I, I know his year to day performance, baby. Um, so, and the reason our special consultant made an appearance is because it's the one year anniversary of the Skippy and Dougal show. Congrats, Dougals. Five deuce. Five deuce. This is our can, 52nd episode. Can you believe? So the way for folks that, uh, that are not in the know, which I think is everyone in the world, that's not us. <laughs> the way that, uh, that this came about was we would talk about investing, like just as, as friends do, we'd have phone calls and whatnot. And then toward the end of last year. Uh, after one of our calls, we were like, should we start recording these and see what's up? Right. It was like, let's see what's yeah. up. Yep. And so it's it's wild thinking now that on a weekly basis, we've been doing this every week, nonstop on the road. Like you said last time, it's like the amazing race last time. And you were yeah. saying, you're like 10, 10 states, states, baby. It's a uh, it's great. It's been really nice pontificating, perpetrating and constituating with you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, it's it's awesome that people like it. Uh, we're having fun with it, and hopefully, we're providing some knowledge too. So, uh, year two is going to be exciting, Diggles. Oh man, Ooh, we got some ideas, things. some scary ideas over here. I'll tell you what's not exciting. What's that? Well, it's ex it's exciting for some, not exciting for do Diggles over here, because one year ago when we first started recording this, what were we talking about at the beginning? I think some of your idiotic stock picks in China. Yeah, China Mobile. And I had this hypothesis. I said, we got the world's largest uh, mobile carrier by subscribers, China Mobile, over in China. They doing their 5G investments. And it was, it was down. It was down 2020 a bit. And I said, I think, I think this is going to do its thing. I think this is going to do its thing. So, you know, so I, I threw some, I threw like six pence its way and then delisting like delisted and we we talked about the ups and downs from that delisting. yeah we debated what you're gonna do as the delisting was approaching it, right exactly exactly and i got freaked out and i sold which was probably the right yeah, thing to good do call. yeah right thing to do now china mobile is having a huge listing over in shanghai oh i was reading the uh the press release and it said it said one year ago today Dougal's sells china mobile <laughs> and and so we decided that we're just going to mock him. Um, so $7.64 billion is how much they're raising in the Shanghai IPO. Absolutely, absolutely huge. Give or take a year from when they were delisted from the U.S. Coming out with a huge IPO in Shanghai. I, 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 wish, I, I wish I could buy. 
I wish I could buy. So refresh me my memory here. Like they cuz they had a US listing. They got in trouble with the government. I think the Trump government, but it kind of carried over, right? Yeah, yeah, they they didn't they didn't get in trouble. It wasn't anything that China Mobile specifically did. What it was was Trump when he was president, he signed something that said that any organization that we believe has ties to or supports the Chinese military, um, it was a security yeah. issue, yep. right? It has to be delisted. And so the telecom companies, so it was China Mobile, can't remember the other ones, I think China Telecom, and there was one other that I can't remember the name of, but they they got delisted because it's information, right? Like they basically are the ones that are like, uh, are allowing information to be transmitted. And so they said, that's a security concern in the US. Um, they have ties to the Chinese military. And there were others that, that fell under there too, but those were yeah. big ones because they're such big companies. So it wasn't anything that China Mobile specifically did. It was that they are a telco uh, in China. Yeah, so, but they delisted here. And I think most of the US investors pulled their money out. Are they still on the OTC market in the US? I don't think so. I've okay. checked. I don't, I don't, but I don't think so. Because that, that process is just so, I mean, we talked about this with scare tactics around Alibaba and Didi and other Chinese securities. Like that process yep. is so foreign to me. I don't really know how like your ability to raise capital in one country dies and then you reissue the S- Shanghai shares. And it's like, if it was still on the OTCs, I don't, in the US, I don't know how that like competes with the shares listed in Shanghai in terms of like, it wouldn't formally be a class A, class B situation, but it's just a fascinating thing that I haven't had time to research. So I'll pour one out. Pour one out. <laughs> we'll do. All right. 52nd fishbowl. What you got? I want to start. I want to really dive into a rabbit hole with you, and I hope I can articulate this right. Uh, Jack Dorsey had a fight with Andreessen Horowitz this week, it seems. Is that how you read the situation? It's, well, it seems like he had a fight with all venture capitalists. But but yes, yeah. but specifically, Mark and Jason of A16Z. Yes. So he started with a tweet that says uh, 44,000 likes that says, you don't own Web3 in quotes. The VCs and the LPs do. It will never escape their incentives. It's ultimately a centralized entity with a different label. Know what you're getting into. Dot, dot, dot. So... So fascinating. I saw this and, and just thought he was kind of having a hissy fit, but it turns out there's a lot more to this. And Dugo's, I think what's happening here is he's rebelling against the way venture capitalists work in almost the startup world that they've moved into crypto, crypto and are treating crypto like the startup world. And I think he hates that idea because the thing he loves, why he's a huge Bitcoin guy, is the decentralized piece. And so he sees these new cryptocurrencies, even the ones that have lots of promise and that the ones that I think of more as startup companies, he sees how rich A6Z and others is getting by effectively providing seed funds for these ICOs. And he stopped about it. Thoughts? That does seem like what's happening. I also would like to flag, I'm going to say, oh yeah, I think flag's the right word. I'm going to flag that it feels like a lot of this is actually what I'll call illusioned decentralization anyway. Yeah. Like it, if you, I, I don't remember the, the exact number, but it's close to this. If you look at ownership in Bitcoin specifically, it's something like 0.1% of Bitcoin holders own like something massive, 80%, 90%. Like it's, it's a massive percent of the value of Bitcoin. And so while the concept is decentralized, is it decentralized? Like, I, I think that, that's, a, that's a question that I, I have anyway. And so I, I think that that is what, what Jack's all about, like what you just described. But is it, what's the difference? I, I think is maybe the question that I ask. Like, why, yeah. why is it that he's, he's pushing there? I was trying to find that exact stat. I don't think it's quite, quite that drastic, Dougals. But let's say that the makeup of Bitcoin in terms of holders of the wealth doesn't look that different from the makeup of like the US economy, right? In terms of a lot of the wealth sits with a small minority of the people. And so that is a counter argument to someone that goes, oh, this is this brave new economy that's good for the upstart individual. It's probably not. There's still a few fat cats um, getting rich off of things. Yeah. And it's, it, you're right. It's not as, not as stark 
um, not to be confused with Sark, uh, not as Stark as <laughs> my favorite what I Stark said, pick. <laughs> exactly. It is as of late October, 0.1% or 50% of the mining. That's not the value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, but that's a, it's pretty substantial. I'll try and find the value while we're, um, while, while we keep going to. Well, and a lot of the really wealthy people, if you talk, Bitcoin millionaires now are people that started mining in 2013, 2014, sometimes, you know, and, and just didn't really know what to do with it, but thought it was a worthwhile exercise. So that's a little off topic where I want to tap into your startup expertise. It's like what I think Dorsey's pissed off about is that something like Solana, which I've talked about on the show takes a large majority of their initial coin offering, their ICO, and get, carves it out for VCs and early backers, I'll call it. And you can look at 20 other coins that have done something very similar. And so then the VCs have these huge chunks of coins at the best price available, if it actually turns into something. And it's more likely to turn into something because of their backing, their funding, their resources, their connections, right? And yep, yep. Dorsey's going, these people are doing nothing and look at the wealth they're generating. Well, I love that he made me think about that this week, but my pushback is they do that all the time without crypto involved, just with a company, right? They come in, they hire the right CEO, they connect them to the right firm, they throw the right money here. And these, they have some of the most powerful connections in the world in terms of starting a business and they've gotten wealthy off of it. They're doing the same thing in crypto. And I guess I don't know what to think about it. I mean, what do you think about this? Is this just the VC cycle of a really good venture capitalist? Yeah, to me, it sounds the same. I think where one of the places Jack would probably push back on is in either he or his beard would push back on is he would say that there's there's the opportunity for I'm going to say Bitcoin in this case, specifically to be pure or pure, purer. like there's the opportunity for it. Like it can be a yeah. way that if you take it out of these hands, it's a way that the world can at least more democratically. Uh, and I don't mean that from a government perspective. I mean that from a like in the hands of the people perspective, yeah. be distributed like it's possible. And so get your grummy hands out of it. I think you might say like this, this naturally has an opportunity, quote unquote, naturally has an opportunity. I think that's probably what you come back and say. But I agree. That's the same thing. I, I I don't really necessarily see the difference. Um, I mean, where I'm hung up on, because you could talk about Twitter, or you could talk about Google, and you could say, like, you could talk about any company you want, and you could say, it's a great company that makes life better for the world's citizens. And I know that we push back on both those examples, but choose your own adventure. I don't necessarily get mad at the venture capitalists that came into Google 20 years ago and helped get the thing off the ground. I look at the potential that it has now, but I do understand the frustration. There's a good graphic that he retweeted of like the pipe of ICO activities and it has 90% of the, you know, delicious beverage falling into the venture capitalist mouth and drops falling into the people's mouths. I, I totally get where he's coming from. And I love this thought experiment this week. I just wanted to get your take on it because to me, it seems like any other startup. And yes, the VCs are getting rich. I'm going to throw in one other take on this. It's, it's a very different angle, but still in Web3 is there was a, a piece that I read this past week by Tim O'Reilly, and it's called Why It's Too Early to Get Excited About Web3. Tim O'Reilly, is he's been part of the, the web and internet uh, PC ecosystem for quite a while, a prolific writer, owns O'Reilly Media. Uh, and he, one of the things that he's uh, he's known for in the space is coining the terms open source and Web 2.0. Um, so he put out this piece. And what he's saying, this is different than the concentration piece, different than the VC piece, but I think it's really interesting with Web 3, is he's saying that it's it's a bit too early to get excited because of the lack of infrastructure that's being built for it. Um, and so one of the examples that he gives, actually, let me let me give a quote and then I'll give an example. A quote from this piece, he says, is if Web3 is to become a general purpose financial system or a general system for decentralized trust, it needs to develop robust interfaces with the real world, its legal systems and the operating economy. An example he gives from that 
uh, is what we we talked about a few weeks ago on Constitution Dow. Remember, mm-hmm. remember Constitution Dow? Yeah. They a Dow that got together and raised a whole bunch of money to buy the Constitution. So he said if they'd won the election, the Constitution would have been owned by a small group of people that own this LLC. There was no yeah. legal there were no legal ownership rights for those people that that contributed. Right. Which he's saying is like that's an example of how these things are actually disconnected from the real world systems. And you have to have that connection. One, one thing I, I loved in this piece still around the infrastructure piece that he brought up was uh, he brought up this book, which I haven't read, but I'm going to go try and get my my hands on it. This book by Carlota Perez from about 20 years ago called Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital. Have you have you read that? No, oh, no. I want to see if I can find this. So. One important conclusion conclusion he brings up from from the Perez book is that that true technology revolution has to be accompanied by the development of substantial infrastructure. And here's some examples. So for the first industrial revolution, this included canal and road networks. Mm -hmm. For the second, railways, ports, and postal services. For the third, electrical, water, and distribution networks. For the oil age, it was interstate highways, airports, refining, and distribution capacity, and hotels and motels. And for the information age, it was chip fabs, ubiquitous telecommunications and data centers. What it, what it runs through is uh, in the article, go, go and read the post because in the post, it walks through these different bubbles, or sorry, these different um, just time periods and accompanies them with bubbles. And what he, what he says is that these bubbles happen. And then what organizations do is they overinvest because it's a bubble. Like there's a mania, they run and they overinvest and overinvest in this infrastructure. And then even when the bubble bursts, you still have you have all this vacant infrastructure that exists and that infrastructure is then used by the next wave of folks that kind of come in and take advantage of it. So the dot-com one, you have a bunch of empty data centers, right? Like everyone built out, you have a bunch of pipe that had been developed, like Spectrum, right? That had been developed and now people can come and use it. And with Web3, he's saying like, there is no tie to the real world. There's no tie to infrastructure. And so it's it's too early for it to be able to succeed. So that, that was the, the take by the post. I thought it was a really interesting take. So I love this. And I was uh, just trying to find the book that I have in the mail because I've been fascinated with this idea, the bubble idea. And we've talked about it before, but I just purchased Pop, Why Bubbles Are Great for the Economy by Dan Dingo Gross. Because this idea of if we speculate that we're in a bubble right now, I want to see it's natural for human nature to want to see the other side of that. I know that that's impossible, but I'm curious about it. And I want to try and better understand what infrastructure is being built today that might not be fully realized until five or 10 years later. So I love that take for sure. I didn't know all the Tim O'Reilly background. That's helpful too. He, he's just always around and thinking. He's doing more than thinking, but, it's, but <laughs> like, he's just kind of always around and writing, right? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great like, brain to tap into never met Tim O'Reilly. So I don't know about, yeah, you know, what he's like in person, but yeah, really interesting. All right. So let me try to type one list on that we should have done earlier. When we talk about web three, we didn't really design, uh, define web three. I, as far as I know, web three is being coined by Chris Dixon. Is that true? So first I uh, no. heard of it. No, okay. web three first started coming about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. I think something like that is when it, it, but it, but it's it's changed like definitions, I think, a bit. But even um, I think it was who was behind ETH, Ethereum, because I feel like that's actually oh, where Vitaly somebody. Yeah, maybe I, I'm not sure, but I, I think it came something like that. So but, but Dixon Dixon's all up on it. Like he, he's yeah. probably making it, popularizing it. I think he's popularizing it is the way to say it. As I think about it, but I don't know if this is the right de- definition. I hear people talk about Web one as like the yahoos and the netscapes and it's uh there's stuff on the internet that you go out and consume and then so it's kind of uh reading it's a extension of your newspaper almost then web 2 i think is more like um the platforms come into play so the social media whether it's myspace or facebook or youtube or whatever and there's a read write relationship you more interacting with the web and web 3 is that next step where you're interacting um there's reading and writing going on but then there's also an execution or exchange of goods seamlessly like uh they they talk about tying your crypto wallet to your browser so theoretically i know this has been talked about for 10 15 years but like you could pay 
seven cents to read an article instead of paying ten dollars to subscribe to the new york times and you could read articles all over the web or exchange other types of commerce and goods in a way that should seamlessly tie commerce with internet browsing and activity is that how you could you correct that for me Dougal? is there a better definition there web one and web two i think that's right the only other thing i've seen ascribed to web two but it's the same concept is um user generated content but it's still it's the same yeah. as in like there's a platform that you can put your own content in as opposed yeah, to right. being other people and then web three i've seen i've seen it described in a few different ways there's the blockchain explicitly being tied to it saying that it's the web built on blockchain there's the decentralized versus centralized ownership concept mm -hmm. trust i've seen being tied to it that there's a which i think that's also tied to blockchain implicitly is yeah. that you know the source of all information that's trusted but i haven't seen a clean definition that is stuck um at least, at least so far that's just because it's I not really here i think uh the the thing the point you do that's really good that the people that love blockchains get fired up about is that clear ownership so if i gave a crazy example about distributing funds based on what websites i visit kind of if there were clear owners to the assets that i'm browsing then some of that monetary flow could flow directly to the content creators slash owners uh which is a, a fascinating uh potential thought experiment as well i'm gonna jump on that web yeah 2 go train. for it all right dip into the fishbowl when i feel web 2.0 i'm gonna pull it out feel it <laughs> here's what i'm gonna talk about uh, i want to talk about platforms so first is what got me furred up recently recently as in a few months ago plus like last week got me fired up about platforms so i'll talk about that and then i'm gonna dive into some intellectuality that i don't know what that was i'm gonna <laughs> dive into it a few months ago I was opening up my email and I was excited for what could come in my email. I was like, something, my fortune cookie done told me something good's going to come. But what I saw instead was Roku sent me an email that said we were unable to finalize the deal with YouTube TV. You ought to lose YouTube TV. Now, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I would, I take my, my Roku TV outside. I have like a little lightweight Roku TV. I take it outside, sit out in the nice summer weather and I put on some sports and i watch yeah. it i just watch it you know until in wee hours wee hours for older folks like me is like seven but <laughs> i watch it for a while and so now i said with the roku tv i'm losing youtube tv like that just it like that's a, it's a big part of like the value you know that was gotten there so that was upsetting yeah last week i got an email that said uh, this was from youtube tv so now we're <laughs> like now roku talking about youtube tv now youtube tv talking about disney and they're saying we couldn't finalize the deal with disney and so therefore, you're losing your Disney channels, you're losing ABC, you're losing ESPN. I felt more okay with this. <laughs> because so for if I'm being honest, for about 15 to 20 seconds, livid. I was livid. I was like, what you take, you took something from me that I had. Then they then I read a little further and it said 15 bucks a month cheaper. And I went, Oh, <laughs> like, I've already got I have ESPN plus, right? I've subscribed to like Hulu. I've got Disney Plus. I was like, I actually don't need those channels yeah. on YouTube yeah. TV. So I'm good. So I'm just saving 15 bucks a month. Right. Um, and so I, then I felt really happy about it. About a day later, they came back and said, actually, we're good now at Disney. But so, so the Dougal's emotional train is not what this is about. What this is about, though, is it got me thinking about the importance of ownership of content versus ownership of the platform that then distributes the content. And we've had a lot of uh, platform companies that do not own the content that are that have been coming out, you know, over whatever period of time. Right. We were just talking about Web 2.0. And so I started thinking, like, oh, which is more valuable is content king is platform king. Right. So I'll, I'll pause for a second, get your reaction and then we can keep going. I love this thought. This is something I've been a lot more interested in the past five years that I don't think I, I gave this a moment's worth of thought like before that but um you know i'm sure we'll talk about the spotify business model and others i think this is a really important thing to understanding your investments and as at the moment i'm not convinced that the platform play is the appropriate play because you're always at the mercy of the people that price the content and what i've seen happen frequently seems like if those platform providers make too much money the content providers go, you know what? Their margins are too good. 
we aren't charging enough for the content that we create and the platform providers get caught in this vicious cycle of being at the mercy of someone else. And, and I think, I think that that's the reason why you, you're seeing more platform companies now creating their own content. And by now, I mean, it's been happening for, for a minute, right? You go back to Netflix house of cards, which then like sparked a whole bunch. Like you, it's uh, owning that whole value chain yep. um, is, you know, is awesome. So I went, I went back to this piece called The Platform Economy that was from Sparkline Capital. And it was written back in December 2020. So I just, uh, I came across it more recently than that. I went back and reread it because I got, I was so fired up. When I get fired up, I got to go read about investments. This so, is all because, uh, what? Because YouTube sent you an email? Yeah, because YouTube on Sparkline Capital. Yeah, YouTube sends me an email. My wife doesn't see me for seven hours. That's like, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, uh, so I went back and read this piece, and there were just some interesting, interesting pieces to it. What the piece is about is it's about platform companies and looking at um, why they're successful, the rise of them, etc. So I just want to drop a few facts because I went down this this little rabbit hole, and I'd love to to chat with some of them. Uh, So one is it defines platform companies as companies that externalize their means of production. Okay. Simple enough definition. One, uh, one chart I really enjoyed in there just for fun was it was labeled the, the uh, platform parade of IPOs. And so going back just over the last couple of years, it was showing Lyft, Uber, Zoom, Pinterest, Fiverr, Slack, Snowflake, Unity, DoorDash, Airbnb, right? It was just like slowed this, showed this uh, parade. Yeah. And then it labeled like the OGs of platforms, the platform predecessors of Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Meta, Facebook, that actually it did say Facebook, Meta was my terminology because this was a year ago, but it just talked about those. And then something I hadn't thought about was uh, the the types of businesses that a platform can be in. And it labeled two of them, which I think it may have pulled from from someone else's research, but one is transactional. And those are platforms that serve as intermediaries for direct exchanges or transactions between users and innovation platforms which provide a technological foundation upon which other firms develop complementary innovations. So either you are a place where people can connect directly or you provide yeah. a means, a technological means for other people to build upon. So those are the two types of platforms. Examples being on transaction like uh, Facebook, eBay, right, or different types of transactional platforms. And then you have on the innovation side like AWS, right? Um, some of the enterprise software companies like Salesforce or Apple or like NVIDIA, right? Or like examples of innovation platforms. So in the, they use this fancy dancy natural language processing, which basically means look at a whole bunch of words and then yep. tell people what they don't see. And so they use that to say that platforms over the past 12 years have outperformed by 8.1% per year over the S&P 500. If you just invested in platform companies um, across the S&P 500. They would have outperformed the overall S and P five hundred. So that was the, and that was equal weighted or uh, market cap weighted. Basically, it was around eight percent. Yeah. Let me jump in there, and then yeah, I want to. I want to hear more. So that's a much broader definition of platforms than I think about in terms of. Gosh, that's almost all technology companies in, in my eyes. Like when I was thinking platforms initially, I was thinking. Roku, Spotify, Netflix type things. And you've seen all those companies struggle with wholesale transfer pricing power and work on creating their own content. Calling Facebook and Salesforce a platform is something I just got to get used to, but I can, you know, but I would wonder when you talk about that outperformance piece, how much of that is coming from what I think are really great businesses in a way like Salesforce and Facebook versus how much is coming from like a Spotify, which I'm not sure if Spotify has ever turned a profit. If so, it's happened recently and it's based on their podcasting and content creation push. They struggled with that for a long time. A part of this, you could just say is that according to this definition, all companies are becoming platforms. <laughs> like it's, it's like another uh, way to per year with, with the looser definition, I think to your point. Yeah. Like examples of companies that aren't platforms, McDonald's was like, that was literally an example they gave of a company that's not a platform. Like, so eBay, eBay is a classic platform, right? They take a commission, they bring, they put buyers and sellers together. You could even say Craigslist is a platform. To me, that's an entirely different business model than Spotify. But it just, because you say eBay says this is the value we provide 
and we take X percent of the sales price. Like, and I think that can be a win-win-win in a way that um, Ariana Grand Grande or who, name your artist isn't going like, oh my goodness, look at all the money they just made off me. Well, and it would really be Sony Music or BMG or whoever owns those rights. We're charging them more the next time we negotiate. And those negotiation windows, there's three to five years. So I guess my learning here is I, I had way too narrow a definition of a platform and was only thinking about it uh, in the content creation space. Or maybe you didn't. I think it, I think it might just be, it, I mean, because it, it might just be that the, the word platform has now become too representative, I think could be the other example. And but the, the difference of what you, your definition seemingly, um, and this one might come close, it's not quite to the transaction versus innovation, because in transaction, what, from what their definitions, what they're saying is transaction means you're connecting two parties. Like it's, this is a place where you connect two parties. That's that first example you gave eBay. Innovation platforms, they're saying that we we provide this technology and you bring your stuff to us. You can build your stuff on top of us. And like that is, that's the Spotify example. You re, you retain ownership of your thing, but we provide this technology that allows your thing to, to be better. When you put those two things together, it does cover so much. I mean, it there's there's so much of what exists today out there. But it was an interesting, it was an interesting read for me coming off of my fury of thinking, is it is it about which would you rather be the owner of the, the content itself or the owner of the platform? And many companies today are saying yes to that. Yeah. Yep. Well, so. in your example with uh, ABC, ESPN, uh, you know, that $15 a month that YouTube took off your bill and then added back to your bill, I don't think it's public, but YouTube slash Google slash Alphabet did not pay. They are not paying. Um, Disney, 15 bucks a month to provide those services. It's something less than that. So there's a margin there. And this is the great bundling, unbundling conversation. But like Disney plus ESPN has their own streaming service because of some of these challenges in, uh, well, they have Disney plus, they have ESPN plus, like they, they have all these other things here. And I guess I always wonder why when they know the true value of that in the market is 15 bucks a month, they don't turn around, screw their platform providers and say, we are going direct to consumer at 15 bucks a month or maybe at 14 bucks a month. You know, like fascinating stuff here. I wish I had more answers. I don't. I'm not sure there are answers. It's just an interesting conversation. And we'll, we'll see. We'll see if the whole world turns into a platform. Let me follow up with one more thing. So in, yeah. on ter- in terms of the investment hypothesis piece, do you find that intriguing and are you potentially targeting platforms? Not in any sort of a thesis kind of way, like not in like an explicit way, but I, I do think that there's, there's a lot of power in platforms. I mean, we talked a good amount about NVIDIA last week and NVIDIA's multiple, like as ridiculous as it is, the reason it has some premium multiple, right? Not the reason it has this much of a premium multiple, yeah. but the reason it has any premium multiples because it is a platform. Because when people are talking about NVIDIA, they're not talking about what NVIDIA itself is going to create, but they're talking about what others can create off of NVIDIA. Uh, that's why, you know, when it went up 12% that one day, whatever, a couple months ago is because they said, oh, the metaverse is going to be big. If the metaverse will be big, they'll need NVIDIA, right? So it's it's like th- there is a, there's an additional story that feeds a premium off of platform and so i do think that there's there's a there there and i also think per this conversation that there's a place to be careful of because you can get out way over your skis if you put too much on the fact that your platform is going to be the reason if you don't own the use cases of the platform i'll say itself and so i think can get a little bit dangerous but i i do generally like platform even as a within business i'll say in companies that um, I've been in, in the operating side, we we have thought a lot over the years about how to become the platform of, mm-hmm. um, of, of whatever it might be, not of an entire industry necessarily, but how do, how do we enable others to then get value from the thing that we are, like a indirect value from the thing that we're creating? Because then you start to, you get passive income, quote unquote, more passive income yeah. off of it. So Well, I get really excited about the use case in, in certain areas, like when Amazon and Walmart copied this, or maybe Walmart was there, but when 
they were providing enough value that they were getting tons of views to their website. And then they built a marketplace effectively where people that weren't Amazon could buy and sell goods and pay them a small fee. It increased the value of their platform even more because they had more goods and services there. And it gave them that passive income piece. I mean, it made them a more dominant player. Lots of people had copied that. To me, that's a no-brainer, and that is a really exciting investment hypothesis. I'm still not sure about the Spotify's of the world. But Spotify now, what, they pay Joe Rogan $200 million over his contract, and, and they're creating a lot of their own content. Um, so, Also, I should give a shout-out. I had forgotten Sparkling Capital is Kai Wu's firm. They do really interesting research consistently. That's worth a follow online. Yeah, yeah, they, they do. They do. I was joking about the definition of uh, natural language processing <laughs> earlier. Um, but yeah, they do do interesting stuff. And Kaiwu is a former GMO, right? Which we've yes. talked about a good amount. Grantham yeah. Mayo and Oppenheimer? That sounds no. made up. Grantham, um, though. <laughs> Grantham is sure. Uh, the, the guy's French. Montaire uh, is really smart, dude. And then I don't know the O off the top of my head. So, so I, I got one. Houston, we got one. Um, but uh, yeah, he, uh, former GMO. Yes, they, they do some smart stuff, data-driven stuff. It's, a, it's provocative, if nothing else. Like It, it gets you to think. Yes, which we so, like. All, all right. right, what else is in your fishbowl? I'm going to quiz you for a sec so we can, uh, we can uh, get one last embarrassment for the year. Great. You ready for it? Yeah. Okay. Visual capitalist, which I think we both enjoy from time to time came out with a map of the US, broke it down by state, and asked the, and, and used uh, some data from a recent migration policy survey from 2009, the American Community Survey. And it was looking at the languages that are spoken by, in households in the US. So okay. what they came out with was this map that said, if you take out English and Spanish, so because English and Spanish dominate, if you take those out, what is the most common language spoken in each state? Okay, so you get the concept here? This is, uh, this is my type of quiz because this is completely worthless knowledge. Exactly. <laughs> so, but, but it's yeah. not. It's actually, it's actually not. So if you look at the language that is a number one spoken language outside of English and Spanish in the most states, what language is it? Uh <sighs> I don't have good rationale for this, but I feel like it's German. It's Chinese. Okay, that was that was my yeah. rational guess. Um, and they said they said they included both uh, Mandarin and Cantonese, so just Chinese um, broadly. But the so the number of states I don't know, but it's something like if I just look at the map and eyeball it, it's something like twenty. Okay, like is the number? Yeah, that was really what I was gonna say, but um, I didn't. I'm not sure what that means. So. Uh, so that's why I, it is important. The reason I say that it's not completely worthless, because that says something. If about half of our, you know, you take out English and Spanish, so I get that. But if you have nearly half of our states where the number three, at least language, is Chinese, that says something. It, where, where I would push back is because you take out the two most populous solutions to this problem, like you could be talking about five percent of households you could be talking about half a percent of households i don't really know and so with that's my that's my challenge to it yeah it's about four million people in the u.s so it's it's like five percent of foreign language speakers but the, the reason i think that one is important is that the u.s has the most chinese speakers in the world outside of china yeah that's meaningful like it, it's a like when you when you think about U.S. China relations, like it's not it's not an immaterial number of people in this country that are Chinese, um, I think is kind of the point as we go through this. Whereas if you go to China, it likely I don't know the numbers, but it likely is an immaterial number of people that are American that are, that are in, in China. Um, and so like China likely has less like American like feelings or ties than Americans have Chinese feelings and ties. We don't have to talk about that. This, this is more about a quiz. I'm, now I'm taking it. Now I'm, I'm getting... Okay. Well, talk about over your skis. Okay. So now here's an interesting one. So if you look at the number of people, so not the number of states this time, but what is the number two? Like what's number two 
China, Chinese is number one. Also, it's by people and by states. But okay. what's the number two most spoken language by number of people? So, I mean, I, I don't know if you're trying to confuse me because what's happening with China is the the large population of that country is dominating. Um, so I'm not sure if you're trying to throw me towards another country with a very large population. But I, I still think there's got to be something with European heritage in here. Um, eh, you're in the wrong continent. I'm, so wrong. I'm, not, I'm, I'm okay. just kidding. <laughs> like, no. It's Tagalog. Interesting. Which is, yeah, so from the Philippines. What's most interesting is it's number two by number of people, but only one state is it number one in. So it, there's only one state. Guess what state that is? I mean, you're making me feel really stupid. I have no idea. Utah. Oh, wow. Fascinating. There it is. There yeah. it is. I will. We can we can wrap the quiz there. We could go we could go into some depths, but but I came across this. That was an interesting, uh, interesting visualization. When I first saw the title of this, I was like, most like common foreign language is definitely Spanish. But when they cut out Spanish, I was like, oh, OK, this is actually like there's going to be some stuff I do not know. But uh, there that is. Quiz for you. Last quiz, maybe, of the year? Yeah. Well, who would have thought that uh, Utah was going to wrap its uh, diversity muscles on this podcast? Nice yeah. work, Utah. There you go. There you go, Utah. All right. Fishbowl dip. It's one more crypto thing. It's Dan Moorhead at Pantera Capital. They are a the firm, so let's just, you know... Uh, think about the author and what they're trying to push, what book they're trying to sell, as we like to joke. But there's some fascinating stuff in here. So his hypothesis has been and continues to be that crypto is the most asymmetric trade in a generation. He starts by saying the cryptocurrency market cap is $2.5 trillion today. And if you put that in context of other financial institutions, I guess you'd call it, Here's some numbers. Global digital payments is a $5 trillion market. So there's no reason crypto shouldn't eat that if uh, corporations ever get to trust it. Gold is a $10 trillion market. So people talk about Bitcoin as digital gold. The Bitcoin bulls will tell you that the Bitcoin market cap is going to be at least $10 trillion. Global M2 money supply is $100 trillion, And global bonds are $120 trillion. Let me get an initial reaction from you. You think crypto and eats any of those markets? I, I go back to what I've brought up, the question I brought up a couple of times and we've discussed yeah. is the technology behind, I think, fuels a lot of stuff. I think it's, it can be really interesting. The coins themselves, why? Like, yeah. I, that's, that's totally fair. I And I'm listen, I'm not a... I'm not a Bitcoin bull or even a crypto bull at this point. I'm still very skeptical. But again, you go back a year, I've said, I think this is the most fascinating technology being developed in like the financial space. And I still feel that way. So I end up reading more about it. Let me throw just like a couple interesting stats from this and we won't talk about it. He does an analysis. I haven't double checked the math on the total fixed income outstanding worldwide and comes up with a number around $50 trillion. To give you some context there, uh, corporate bonds are about $10 trillion, mortgage-backed securities, maybe $11 trillion, treasuries are $21 trillion, and municipals are about $4 trillion. I just, I never see it sliced that way. That's an interesting yeah, That is interesting. That is really interesting. And then he did a breakdown of uh, global consumer price inflation. Uh, with a few select countries. I also thought this was fascinating. So Brazil at more than 10% currently. Russia's in the 7% range. US and Mexico hovering around 6%. All of Europe is now pushing 4% and the UK is in that range too. So I didn't really know if the inflation scares were um, a US only thing or a worldwide thing. It appears, again, he, he wants it to be. He wants inflation to be a problem because that's good for his Bitcoin hypothesis. But it appears that inflation is happening in the world. And as we talked about Turkey, 21%. And so they're yes. cutting interest rates further. Well, Diggles, did you see the noise they made this week? Um, they actually managed to strengthen the lira slightly. And I didn't dive into that, but that's something worth watching going forward. It's a, this is an experiment. Unfortunately, it's an experiment on people 
like through through economy. But it's an experiment that it's going to be fascinating to watch because you you have a president of a country that is diametrically opposed to raising interest rates with a 21 percent inflation on his back. And so he's just cutting and cutting like it's a we're going to see what happens. So I wish I could remember exactly what they did this week, but the the Wall Street Journal had this awesome article on percentage of citizens' holdings that were in the lira versus another currency in their bank accounts, and it had reached the point where more than half of the currency was being held outside of the lira. And then with news this week, uh, it flipped back, and there's there's more confidence in the lira than there has been in the last several weeks. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. I'll get an update to the folks uh, next episode. All right. Back to the fishbowl. Anything else for you, Douglas? What it is, last topic of the year. There is an article in the Wall Street Journal this week by James McIntosh, our boy, James McIntosh. Yeah, our boy. Go back and listen. We, we had a, a debate on negative interest rates. So he came out, always smart writing by yes. James. The name of the, the piece is, is the Fed deflating prospects for speculative stocks? And so what the question that's being raised per the title is whether this big decrease in some of the like the 2020 and early 2021 heavy hitters, like Tesla, as an example, the stocks that just like really took off. And this includes meme stocks too, like GameStop early this year, whether the recent Fed announcement is part of the reason why they're getting hit so hard. Recent Fed announcement being that they're going to be raising interest rates next year and they're stopping the uh, bond purchasing earlier. He's saying, is that what's going on? Uh, and he basically comes out and from the beginning, because James McIntosh is writing this, you know, it's, it's not going to be a straightforward answer. Um, but what he what he basically came out and said is no, like that. There's not really evidence like there's tangential like relationships between these things happen, but there's not really evidence. One of the quotes he put out there that I really liked was, no one buys GameStop, let alone Bitcoin, because of a discounted cash flow model. So true. Absolutely That's right. a really good one. <laughs> Absolutely right. So he's like, so then if you raise interest rates, or like bond yields, like, like raise, like what, that, what does it matter for your model? Your, your DFC doesn't change. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but what it got me thinking about this article was something we've talked about a couple times here on the pod around inflows this year. And so what, what, uh, what the piece raised for me was that no one is feeding the story anymore. Like these, these are story based stocks for yeah. the most part. And there was so much inflow, right? What was it? It was the inflows from this year were more than the past 21 or 19 years. I think it was combined. It was something mm -hmm. outrageous. Yeah. And so even just stopping record inflows will cause these stocks to go down. Like that's a, that by itself, I think it's fascinating. If you're not feeding the stories, right? So inflows are going down. And the market was something that was driven by new money coming in, like excessive new money coming in. And so people deciding, I'm actually just going to leave it my savings account, like, well, we'll do it. And by people, I mean uh, retailers, not like everybody, because okay. you have your institutional investors are doing their thing, right? Institutional investors, not everyone, but have been some many have kind of been saying that these stocks aren't what they're into for a while <laughs> anyway. And so if you stop the retail mania, stop that story that it's like that alone can drive down stocks like this. Um, and so that was, that was what I like something I thought was interesting. I don't know if you find that that interesting too, that concept interesting, but it was what uh, this article got me thinking about. I do. I mean, I don't follow the institutional investors uh, unless they make a bunch of noise like Kathy Wood, but I don't really know institutional investors outside of Kathy Wood that are saying Tesla buy right now to your point. And I don't really know retail investors that are saying Tesla's a buy right now, to, to use one specific example. I went through the Scott McNally quote from 2002 last week about how expensive 10 times revenue is, and Tesla and NVIDIA are closer to 30 times revenue right now. I think it gets really hard to make an investment hypothesis at that point. It reminded me, maybe this is a loose analogy, let me know, but it kind of reminded me of uh, our conversations around the supply chain this year too, because there's... There was a lot of uh, chatter about how the supply chain is weak on the, the supply side. And then we, we've had a couple conversations about 
how it's the demand side. We brought in some articles that we'd read and whatnot around it's the demand is so excessive that even though supply is actually over where it has been historically, yeah, it can't keep up with demand. It feels like somewhat similar to me. That it's just the demand for stocks was so excessive, especially by by retail folks and in these story stocks because they were the stories that just just by taking the insane amount of like excessive demand out. I don't want to say it's just excessive, like it's outrageously excessive. By taking that out, you're going to start to see the true colors of the market. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a really good analogy because um, the demand for stocks, especially story stocks, was unlike anything we've seen in the past two decades in 2021. And just the fact that that has cooled slightly has ramifications that maybe don't mean there's um, significant market swing. There's not significant swings in how people feel about investing or those specific investments. There's just not the same crazy demand that there was earlier in the year. What happens when people go back to work and can't just sit around buying stocks? Like, that's oh. <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be fun. Oh, 2022. 2022. What does the year have in store for us? I can't wait. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do. We, uh, we have exciting news coming in 2022. I'll promise you that. We've done 52 straight episodes. We hope to continue that with maybe uh, a slight break here or there. We won't miss more than two weeks in a row. Thanks for going on the ride with us, guys. It's really fun to celebrate episode 52 with you. You can always hit us up and find us where, Dougals? On Substack is where we do our writing. It's skippyanddougals.substack.com. What about that Twitter? at Skippy Doogles, skippydoogles at gmail.com. Also, on the subsect piece, I think we have, uh, we'll have more content coming for you shortly. And then uh, hit us with a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please. That helps more people find the show. Thank you for a great 2021. It was a lot of fun spending time with you all. Happy holidays. Peace.